Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan and today on The Detail, Loot Boxes, the video game feature which some say is conditioning children to gamble. Loot boxes in video games should be classed as gambling. That's what the Children's Commissioner for England wants. And Longfield also thinks games need to introduce a maximum daily spending limit for players. I think it's a long time coming that these were seen as what they are, gambling. It's really easy to just charge all this to a credit card. And a lot of parents don't even realise it's going on. That's one of the risks. Parents... You need to know this, and you need to know if your kids are using your credit card to buy the expensive online version of bubblegum cards. Dr. Aaron Drummond from Massey University studies the psychological effects of media. I began by asking him the million-dollar question. What are loot boxes? So a loot box is a a digital container of randomised rewards that is purchasable uh, quite often for real-world money in Um, conventional video games. So how does it actually work in practice? You you go to the store, you buy a video game, you take it home, you put it in your PlayStation 4. Where does it go from there? So provided your PlayStation is connected to the internet, then um, many of these games, not all of them, of course, um, but many of them have access to sort of stores within the game um, that you're playing and you just go to the store and indicate that you want to buy a new loot box and sometimes it'll allow you to do that with kind of money that you've earned in game that's not real money and sometimes you'll be paying real world money on your credit card and do you enter your credit card details and uh, off you go you buy your your loot box for $2.50. And what are actually in the loot boxes? What are you actually buying? So that depends, uh, it varies a bit game to game. Um, some games, what you might get is a, just a purely cosmetic reward. It might change the way your character looks. It might change sort of the um, general colour scheme of the game or something like that. Um, in other games, however, you're actually going to get a reward that's going to change the way the game plays. And it might be like a very powerful weapon um, that might give you the upper hand in future games against other people online, or it might be uh, something that's less useful to you. The critical thing here is that when you go to buy it, you don't know uh, what it is that you're going to get. And so you're putting in the same amount of money every time. Uh, It's usually about $2.50 for a single loot box. And quite often what happens is that you you then don't know whether you're going to get something that's powerful or you're going to get something that you want or whether, in fact, you might get something that you don't want or can't use uh, effectively. And you can uh, imagine a similar situation if you were to go to your local clothing store and say, I'd like to buy something, and they just hand you a random coloured shirt that may or may not fit you, and that's the kind of equivalent situation that we're talking about. So it's kind of like a lucky dip. Yeah, very similar to a lucky dip in that sense. Loot boxes are a hot topic in the gaming community, and more widely actually, because of their apparent parallels to gambling. So there are a lot of uh, similarities between the two, most notably that the randomization of rewards that you're going to receive is very similar. And it's delivered on what we call a variable ratio reinforcement schedule, which is a reinforcement schedule which really increases people's behavior. It causes the rapid learning of behaviors um, that are repeated often in the hopes of getting that next reward. This is pretty much slot machines in a nutshell. Keep playing long enough and eventually you will win some money. And you might hear some sounds a bit like this. That money and those sounds are telling your mind, yay, we won, let's do it again. And so you do. Just as a comparison, this is what a loot box in the game Overwatch sounds like when you open it. 
whenever we engage in a behaviour and we don't get what we want, uh, we know that it's possible on the next time, maybe that'll be the time that we get the big win or, or get the thing that we're chasing. And so this can produce very um, quickly learned behaviours that are highly persistent and very difficult to unlearn. Um, the other sort of aspect of this is that when you are dealing with real-world money that's being put into the game, um, it, it is certainly the case that it's a little bit different to just sort of a randomised um, reward that you might get or might not when you're paying real-world money for that. There's clearly um, some degree of, of stake in it. And as I say, it's, it's, it would be similar to if you got a random piece of clothing when you went to the clothing store. So at the moment, we're talking on a more theoretical sort of level, but do loot boxes actually affect real people? I'm Andre Frude, and I'm the Director of Communications and Marketing at the Problem Gambling Foundation. Do you hear stories, are there anecdotes, are there stories of people whose lives are affected by this? Yes, I've read some horrific stories, horrific stories about young people dropping lots of money. How much are we talking? We're talking hundreds, thousands? Hundreds. And in some media articles, you know, thousands. And, of course, raising awareness about the issues around loot boxes and and about the use of credit cards and that sort of thing because it's really easy to just charge all this to a credit card and a lot of parents don't even realise it's going on. That's one of the risks associated with it and I think parents need to be aware that it's really easy to do that and there's micro um, transactions within these games and you've got to pay for them and kids can just do that and they don't really realise what they're doing sometimes I don't think. What is gambling? <laughs> well, the legal kind of definition, it's, it's when you pay um, money or, or a, you stake a consideration on something in the hope of winning something at the end of it, and the outcome is purely determined by chance. So that's kind of the legal definition of gambling. And is, one of the issues here is the interpretation of that word gambling when it comes to the legislation yeah. that actually lays out what is and isn't gambling. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that can be, that's pretty interesting. And in fact, loot boxes have really brought that to the fore because in the definition of gambling, the Department of Internal Affairs here have said, well, loot boxes don't fit into that definition. But parents aren't really going to care whether loot boxes fit into the definition of gambling. What they're going to care about is whether you know, loot boxes are going to cause their children harm or put them at risk. And we've hit on a key point here. What does and doesn't qualify as gambling? In 2017, the Department of Internal Affairs, which oversees gambling law in New Zealand, was asked by a private citizen whether it should be regulating loot boxes. The department's response was basically the boxes don't meet the definition for gambling because gamers don't buy them seeking to win money or something that can be converted into money. They buy the boxes to have more fun when they are playing the game. Now, This is a pretty strict interpretation of the term, and our Gambling Act was passed in 2003, which, mindful of technological developments, is a long time ago. Well, I guess they're right in one respect, in that, you know, as I said before, it sort of doesn't quite fit into that legal definition. But at the same time, we need to make sure that our Gambling Act keeps up with the digital age. And, you know, in 2003... When the Gambling Act came into being, these things weren't an issue, but they really 
it's just gone ahead in leaps and bounds and we've seen what's happened in the digital world and with technology and with games and all the developments. So our Gambling Act needs to keep up with the digital age um, and we need to make sure that it's fit for purpose. It's not entirely universally true that you can't make money on these games. Some of the games do have the ability to cash out their winnings. Um, when we examined the, uh, the issue of loot boxes back in 2018, we found that about one in five games have the ability to cash out your winnings into real-world money. Um, most of those were through third-party websites, so they weren't controlled by the, the publisher of the game, but there certainly was a pathway to make money off of those products. How are loot boxes any different from, say trading card games like Pokemon or Magic the Gathering or even something like a Lucky Dip. It's all based on the same kind of philosophy, right? You spend some money and you have a chance at getting something valuable. Yeah, so I guess there are two things I'd say to that. And the first is that um, when we were talking earlier about the idea that some of these games you can monetize your rewards, we're not talking about uh, $1 and $2 prizes. Where we've seen monetization happening on, um, say, for example, the, the Steam um, store. Steam is the biggest computer gaming distribution platform in the world. People buy their games through Steam. We see that items are sometimes sold for $1,000, $2,000 New Zealand. Um, and so... One of the things there that we need to consider is the value of the prizes. They're clearly highly valuable to people in some circumstances. And so it's not like a lucky dip in the sense that you might win a 50-cent item. We are talking about substantial amounts of real-world money. The second thing I'd say is that um, in terms of things like trading card games, that's a, a common argument that's been raised. My colleague David Zendel uh, recently conducted a paper looking at exactly that issue. And what he finds is trading card games do not appear to be associated with problem gambling symptoms in the same way that um, people with problem gambling do overspend on loot boxes. So again, you know, it, it, it is important to understand that not everything that appears similar to gambling is going to have the same effect on, on problem gamblers. Um, here what we see is that with loot boxes, people who have problem gambling symptoms are definitely engaging with them um, at a much higher rate and spending more money on them. And people are spending lots of money on loot boxes. Take, for example, the popular football simulation FIFA. Players can assemble fantasy historical squads by buying random packs of players using digital currency. The 2016 incarnation of that game brought in more than a billion dollars just from those packs. That's more than 30% of the game's total revenue. And tech analyst Juniper Research expect the global loot box market to reach nearly $80 billion in just two years' time. Loot boxes are part of a sort of wider trend of video games using microtransactions to boost revenue. And some people say that these sort of undermine the idea of a game having a fixed cost. Can you sort of uh, elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's a discussion about the issue of, of microtransactions in games more broadly. And I think um, a lot of consumers, a lot of gamers who purchase games feel that when they purchase a game from the store, um, you know, there, there's an upfront cost and that they shouldn't be uh, having to spend more on that game than they spent to buy it in the first instance. Um, the trend is really coming from the fact that there is also uh, an increasing number of free games, or uh, I guess they're, they're free to download onto your mobile phones quite often because the phone market is where these sort of originated. And um, 
and then people uh, that those games are monetized primarily by people buying one or two dollar items um, from the store over time. Um, but what we're seeing increasingly is that that kind of monetization system is creeping more and more into commercial games, which you've already paid sixty to a hundred dollars for. And there's a, a segment of consumer gamers who are concerned that they're being kind of asked to pay more for games after they've already purchased them. Microtransactions might sound nefarious, but they are sort of a way of leveling the playing field a bit, aren't they? You know, these smaller studios have got to make money somehow, and this is a really effective way of doing it. Yeah, well, I think it's important to understand that, you know, making money from video games is is not a problem. Um, I mean, it is a business, and it certainly needs to be a sustainable business for um, for video game manufacturers, whether it's in New Zealand or worldwide. Um, the key issue that we really want to think about is ensuring that that business model is both ethical and sustainable. And so where we see microtransactions that are, are voluntary, truly voluntary, and not going to be necessary for people to buy, but they can, can choose to buy things if they're enjoying the game, and where we find that they know what they're purchasing, so they're not these randomised kind of rewards, that's a much more ethical system. But in not only more ethical, we know that it's more sustainable. What we see when um, you know Star Wars Battlefront 2 came out was a huge consumer backlash against the studios that produced that particular game because people felt that they were being asked to essentially put in more and more money gambling in order to get the things that they wanted from the game, which they thought um, they wouldn't have to do. And so it's not really a sustainable model. It tends to really um, upset the consumer base and so really people should be looking at, at being sort of more ethical and sustainable. One of the cool things about the New Zealand gaming industry is that we have um, some really great examples of, of studios who are set in the way that they are going to approach this and they are absolutely committed to ethical uh, monetization. So, for example, we have Grinding Gear Games who are absolutely dead against including randomised loot boxes and they're including much more ethical and sustainable microtransactions in their games. I think that we need to look very, very hard at what's going on. We need to know more, and I think it's great there is research taking place in New Zealand. So that will help us. The research will help inform what should happen. I certainly think it needs to be on the regulator's radar, as it is, and I know that they're currently uh, reviewing online gambling, and gaming is part of that review. So, and I, and I think parents need to, there needs to be a lot more awareness around loot boxes and the content of these games and microtransactions and potential age restrictions or warnings on these games. Other countries have come up with various solutions. Belgium and the Netherlands have banned loot boxes outright, forcing developers to rejig games in those jurisdictions. And the UK is thinking about doing the same. And other countries like Germany, France and Japan say loot boxes on the surface do qualify as gambling. One solution mooted here in New Zealand is getting games which offer loot boxes to say so on the front cover of the game, sort of like the parental rating on a DVD, if you remember what those are. David Shanks is New Zealand's chief censor. For me, it came up as an issue soon after I started in this role back in 2017. This raised alarm bells with a number of people for, for various reasons, and we had people... Um, point out to us that a lot of the games that contained this functionality were really popular with um, quite young players, you know, under 12-year-olds in many cases. So that was a concern as well. 
this is an issue that absolutely falls in the gap. We have a number of regulatory systems and places that were put in place essentially for a pre-internet era, a pre-digital era. Um, our gambling legislation is, you know, reflects that kind of profile, as does most of our media regulation. And then you have this significant technological change, this significant um, change in behaviours, and we're playing catch-up on how to address that. This does have elements of potentially gambling regulation. It has also elements of media regulation. So we absolutely need to think um, in new and agile ways about how we deal with that. That's the reason why the classification office got involved in this space, was that we were observing the concerns. We were observing that there were potentially harms to users from uh, consumption of video games, a, a media product which we already had an interest in. So in thinking about that, we had a look at what was happening overseas in terms of approaches to this, and you will have probably seen there's you know, some attempts to deal with this under gambling regulatory reform, but there's also media regulatory reform emerging as a solution here, and in particular the Australian Senate Committee review received evidence from specialists, including one of our own uh, professors here at Massey University in New Zealand, pointing out one of the solutions to this could be better consumer information, could be warning consumers and, and parents and guardians about this sort of functionality and this sort of product. You, uh, the classification office, has made a submission to the Department of Internal Affairs about loot boxes. Can you sort of lay out the meat and potatoes of your thoughts on this issue? What did you say, more or less? Very simply, we pointed out the concerns that had been raised with us and the concerns that we're seeing being raised legitimately um, here and overseas. We noted that consumer information, better labelling and potentially age restriction in some cases could provide a mitigation for the harms arising from this type of gambling-type functionality where it was identified. So what we've basically proposed is let's have a look at um, the classification officer's mandate when we're looking at uh, video games and let's consider giving us a broadened mandate to be able to provide consumer information and warnings and potentially age-restrict where that's appropriate. In terms of the legislative change, um, from what we can see, that would be reasonably straightforward because what you would be doing is you would be defining gambling-type elements or functionality as a ground for classification just as violence, horror, cruelty, sexually explicit material is currently. So you'd be adding another frame or opportunity to warn and to restrict. So in terms of the legislation, that doesn't look like it would be particularly complex to us. Um, And we think there's an evidence base already being built there by researchers here and overseas to figure out when it would be appropriate to apply that those kinds of warnings or restrictions. A large part of your role is assuaging the concerns of parents, and particularly in this case parents of teenagers. 
what would your advice to parents of teenagers who might not be the most technologically savvy people themselves and are seeing this sort of weird thing kind of evolving and their kids are involved with it and they're asking for credit card details and that sort of stuff. What would your advice to those parents be? Uh, look, my advice to, to those parents um, in this area, as it is in many areas of figuring out how to help their teenagers with their digital lives is engage with them. Get involved, if possible, in the games that they're playing. Talk to them about the experiences. Have a discussion with them about the things that they um, like or find frustrating. Interestingly, a lot of teenagers find this sort of functionality um, manipulative, and they, you know, there's lots of comments on the the gaming community uh, that condemn this sort of approach. But they've they've learnt to kind of put up with it. Perhaps have a conversation with your teenager about that. There's an opportunity off the back of reports such as this one to start that conversation, and I think that's the key thing that parents can do. I think they need to be really careful about the credit card thing. (laughs) Um, You know, giving a credit card to a child to be able to pay for things in a game is risky, so I think there needs to be um, boundaries around that um, in terms of making sure they're not going to put these, or spend lots of money on, on a credit card. And the other thing is to ask them what games they're playing. I think if it's one of those multiplayer sort of games where they're, where they're playing with others online, you know, the chances are there's going to be some elements of that game where you pay for things um, or where they might be exposed to some of these gambling-type features. And I think just asking them what games they're playing, who they're playing with, you know, what sort of identity they have online. And, and, and it's about keeping them safe online as well. So there's the risks with what's in the game, but there's also the risks of, of playing in this online world with people they don't even know. That's the detail for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a rating as it helps other listeners to find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Aaron Drummond, Andre Frude and David Shanks. Ka kite anō.